five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast in partnership with Kidney Care UK. Sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love. Hi and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. My name is Dee Moore and I am a stage four kidney warrior. This podcast is dedicated to encourage, educate and inspire as we explore all aspects of kidney disease, chronic illnesses and health. If you have any questions or ideas for topics you would like me to cover, please get in contact with me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. For the month of October as part of the Black History Month celebrations, Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast will be running a series focusing on the topics around kidney health and the black community. This first episode in the series features America's first African-American female transplant surgeon, Dr. Velma Scantleberry. Dr. Scantleberry is an honor and award-winning transplant surgeon and author from Delaware, USA, who shares about her journey to becoming a transplant surgeon, health inequalities, and more. Hi and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior, the podcast. How are you doing today, Dr. Scantleberry? Doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. You are so welcome. I am immensely honored that you agreed to join me today. As you know, this interview is part of the Black History Month series, Kidney Health and the Black Community. And to have the opportunity to interview you, the first African-American female transplant surgeon of the United States. I am absolutely honoured. So thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to interview you. You're very welcome and the honour is mine. Thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you. There's so much that I want to ask you about your journey. So Let's start from the very beginning. So tell me about your childhood and growing up and about your family. I was born in Barbados and was the last of seven children and four brothers and two sisters. And I always knew that I wanted to be a doctor from a very young age. Uh, I had an older sister who had passed away in England. And was always curious about her death, but also feeling like I wish I had an opportunity to help her in any way possible. And so the idea of how I can help others came about as I was commissioned to write an essay on my career. And I thought that was would be a great avenue for me to think about. And also because I always wanted to do something, not only to help others, but where I can be my own boss had a sense of independence and being able to have my own business and really do my own thing, sort of make my choices. And so I guess sort of a liberal thinking from my young age, but that was my desire. And so at the age of 15, uh, and the opportunities came for uh, my mom to uh, immigrate to the United States. She did that and then she brought us along. And that's where I came to Brooklyn, New York, to continue my studies and to go to high school. So how was life moving to America compared to life in the Caribbean? 
Well, it was indeed shocking. You know, certainly the change of weather was quite <laughs> drastic. I could not stand the cold, the whole idea of uh, having to bundle up. Uh, you know, in the Caribbean, you're used to wearing light clothes. And, um, you know, as women, our young girls, you didn't very rarely wore pants. And so that sort of carried over for me. And it was a difficult transition. The other part for me that was difficult was uh, the school system was quite different in the subjects, the things they focused on, having not done American history, uh, that was, you know, in Barbados, we're whole different uh, aspect of studying different foreign languages, the Spanish, and we did Latin and Barbados, that sort of thing. And the emphasis and the type of testing was quite different. The whole multiple choice option, what we did here was quite different from our analytical type uh, essay focus in, in the Caribbean. So that was quite an adjustment for me. Uh, and as far as the teachers and understanding, not really seeing or I should say putting down my all already established knowledge of English literature and Shakespeare. That was a big focus for us in the Caribbean. You're too young to know that, or you're too young to understand that sort of thing. So, yeah. So it sounds like they weren't as supportive because they're saying that you're too young. It's, it's coming across like they were underestimating your ability. Right. Yeah. There's no way I could have learned or had an opportunity to learn that stuff at this at a young age where um, that's, it was things like it, that type of English literature was mostly discussed in the college level, that sort of thing. So you said that at a young age, you knew that you wanted to be a doctor. So when you were in the United States and I'm, I'm assuming that you spoke to your teacher or career advisor about the type of career that you wanted to go into, what was the response that you received? Oh, wow, that was quite a, a shock for me because, you know, in Barbados, education is key. Everyone is uh, sent on a track where you have to think about what you want to do and moving forward the competitiveness of many of the subjects. And, and so for me, it was a rude awakening when I was told that I should really consider getting a day job or maybe go to night school because they didn't see me as having that potential to be a doctor. And uh, yeah. And so it was that whether it was the color of my skin, as I talk about in my book or my heavy Caribbean accent or the way I dressed that was not appealing or even for them to look at me as someone with potential from that aspect. So without the guidance of my guidance counselor and the information for college, I ended up applying to colleges, one that was right down the street from us in terms of thinking, but where do I go? Where can I go? And one in New York City. Fortunately, the one that was close to my house, I got a full scholarship. So it sort of reassured me that at least I have some capability. So it was a no-brainer for me because I ended up going to Long Island University on a full four-year scholarship. So straight away, you had to rise above the low expectations that were put on you and say, 
I don't care what you're saying. I'm going to go for it and pursue my dream anyway. And then to do it in style where you want a scholarship as well. I mean, what were their reaction to when they, they saw that you won the scholarship? You know, I really didn't care. I know <laughs> your words were exactly what my mother said. There's no way you're going to work. You're going to college. That was the, my parents were like, there's no way around this. And so, you know, some of my friends at this age and in, as an adulthood would say, why did you not go to uh, what we call an HBCU, a Black Historical University? I said, we had no information. And I didn't have, I was the first generation going to college. I knew of no one outside of who didn't go to college outside of Brooklyn. You went to state colleges, you went down the street, you went to your nearest colleges because those are what we had close by and what was accessible for me to think about going to Howard or Mahari or Spellman was not within my grasp. Um, I wasn't even within, wasn't on my radar as kids growing up in Brooklyn. And then of the African-American students that I later encountered in medical school uh, from the local area, even those from outside had not gone to an HBC. We were privileged enough to just be able to get into a local college from that aspect. So yeah. It was like, this is what you're going to do. And so I went on to college. And despite the underestimation of my potential in high school, I did well in college. I made the dean's list from the first semester and continued to do well throughout college, you know, graduating magna cum laude. And so it was, you know, when you think of someone from the Caribbean, uh, and, you know, at that time, Brooklyn was filled with students from the various islands in the Caribbean. And all of us struggling to be somebody or something. And having that rejection, that um, negativity always remained with me. What if I hadn't gone? What if I had listened to her and did not, and I didn't have parents who were insistent on my going to college? What if I had uh, it was a different situation. I just I think about all the kids who potentially miss out on on uh, opportunities because they were pointed in the wrong direction. And that is so important that we encourage our young people so that they can understand that education is key in order for you to get out that neighborhood, in order for you to get out the ghetto, in order for you to become something that that you're dreamed of becoming, you need that education, you need that encouragement, you need that support, which is very important. I happen to have a, a big family and parents who are raised us to believe that anything we desire to do is possible with the help of God, and that he would give us the strength and he would make a way possible. And, and with that, it was when you see something, you think about it, then imagine yourself being it. And think of that positive aspect it would guide you and it would give you that, that self-assurance. You can get there. That is so powerful and so important that you have that belief and that grounding from your family and from your parents that helped you to have that mindset to pursue and to carry on. And so during your time at university and your medical training, I know that one of the, the quotes that I have for you is, I do my best not to let obstacles bring me down, 
but see them as challenges I overcome. And I guess the attitudes and because I think quite often people say, oh, you know, the challenges of being black and being a woman, but actually the challenges in being black and being a woman, the challenges, people's attitudes, perceptions and stereotypes associated with being black and being a woman. But as a black woman doing your medical training, did you see differences between your male students, the way that they were treated versus the way that you were treated? Oh, absolutely. One of the things that was for me, not so much in college, because for college, I lived at home and commuted back and forth. I didn't have as much intermingling. I did work on campus as a tutor for some extra money and, um, you know, study in the library, that sort of thing. There was a group of us that sort of hung together. But even in terms of expectation and, and capabilities, others need to see and you need to see yourself as being capable, you know, having that self-belief and that understanding that you can achieve. And, and when I applied to medical school, and again, because of my limitations of thinking about where I would be able to go, how I would get there, funding, support, I did apply to Mahari College and was one of the first schools who accepted me to medical school. So that was really for me a lift to say, well, I think I applied very early, got a response very early. But living in Brooklyn, not even knowing where to go, how to get to the campus in Tennessee, that was sort of, for me, outside my reach. And I'm thinking, my parents don't have that money. They've never gone beyond New Jersey or Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania maybe. Yeah, how would I even get to Tennessee? And so the other two schools I applied to was Columbia University and Yale. And I got accepted first to Yale and I applied to Columbia only because someone in my church insisted that I apply there. He was a physician, Black physician who graduated there from Columbia. And he said, what do you have to lose? And my first thought was, they would never accept someone like me. Again, having that, well, you know, Columbia is haughty and there's no way other than you, I don't know of any other Black physicians who graduated from Columbia. But I said, okay. He said, just apply. And I applied to Columbia, remembered my whole interview, uh, felt really good about it, and got accepted to Columbia. And so I went to my dean's office with my acceptance letters, and I'm getting off the elevator, and I stormed in, and I'm like, Columbia, Yale, where should I go? <laughs> Not many people can say that. (laughs) And the, you know, I don't know whether it was the dean or the assistant dean, but I got this reaction of, they were stunned. How come you got into Columbia? And Mary Jane, white Mary Jane didn't get into Columbia. Wow. And that was followed by well, I know why they accepted you because they needed token blacks. Oh, wow. And the look and feel of disappointment. I am one of your students here at this college. And rather than congratulations, how exciting. It was you're a black student. You got into Columbia. My number one student, white Mary Jane, Caucasian didn't make it. 
then there's the only reason is that you can't be that smart. It's only because they need a token. Wow. And I left that office thinking, it must just be me. But at the end of the day, I had to realize as I got home and with all my disappointment and my parents said, you're still going to be a doctor. And I realized that my certificate of medical degree is not going to say token black doctor on it. It's going to say Velma Peace Canterbury. I now bestow upon you doctor of medicine. And while others, you know, whether you're thinking this is just they needed 10 blacks, five males and five females, and we were there for whatever reason, it was a path and an opportunity. And let me use that, not as negative aspect, but let me use that to say, I'm still going to get where I need to be. And that's so very important. Yeah, that's, again, another barrier. Instead of being having showing that excitement for me, someone is already cutting you down with that negative thought. Oh, you're just a token about that. Does that imply that perhaps I wouldn't succeed or I'm not going to do well? That already establishes or puts doubts within your own mind as to your own capability. You know, I'm not going to turn it down just because you think I'm a token. I'm going to send back to why are you taking me? I must be a token. I'm not going to do this. No, that may not have been the reason at all. So those are things that we can see the negativity or we can see the positive aspect. And if you see the negativity, that can bring us down or stop us from moving forward. But you use that obstacle or what others want to create as an obstacle for you, you can then use that as a stepping stone to say, I can use this to get to my next level. You're going to put this block in front of me? Well, now I can use this in a positive way. When you started medical school, how were things in the beginning? Were you made to feel the same way by the tutors there or did you have a better experience well again you know certainly there were 10 of us five males five black males and five black females and five hispanic or or latinos hispanics and males and female and so we certainly got together i think my last uh year or aspect of of college because of what was said, I decided that I was super prepared. I would do all these courses that I felt that I needed to give myself an extra edge. I need to be maybe a little bit above everybody else because maybe I wasn't as good. And I did all this extra studying, all this extra pre-med work so I can go in maybe one step ahead. And all of that information, that whole three quarters of a year that I spent preparing all went out the window, probably in the first two hours of the lecture. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, darn, there goes over. There's lots of studying. Now let's go on to the next lecture. Medical school was difficult. It was an experience where you have to learn how to study. You know, you, I sort of sailed through college. This was now different. 
it was material coming at you left and right. And it was basically survival of the fittest. Uh, one of the things we learned in medical school at that point was that quite a few didn't make it to the end of the four years. And so you had to make sure you were going to go from that first year to second year, not going to be held back. Thank goodness most of the courses were pass fail except for you know some of the exams. And I had to really learn how to do multiple choice questions. This was something quite different for me. It wasn't part of my learning experience as a young kid. So yeah, medical school was difficult. It was late nights. It was certainly I learned as we move on to the third and fourth year, that was a lot of subjectivity in terms of your assessments and your grade. And certainly we see the Black students were struggling, trying to make it and be seen and be heard. And the Caucasian students, some of them would hardly show up for class, but yet still get honors in the class. And so there was a lot of favoritism from that aspect. And um, But we all made it through. I had to learn the hard way uh, about not listening to others when it came to studying or preparation, knowing that I needed extra preparation. I, my technique for studying may not be the same as yours. And when I failed my first board exam, it, I had to learn that the hard way and to learn to maybe I need to go to my corner after studying in a group and do it my style. And so, yes, there were some of us that needed to help others to make it through the four years, but we did so that we can all get to the end of those four years. So did you know before or during, at what point of medical school or was it after then that you knew that you wanted to be a surgeon? Medical school, first year, gross anatomy class, cadaver, Miss Annie, assigned to dissect and learn her muscles and her nerves and her organs on the inside. And as awful as the smell of formaldehyde left you after spending four hours in that laboratory, it was very intriguing. And I would come at any time that it was convenient and that I could get in there to learn more about the body. And so from that very first experience, of learning of anatomy, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon. I wanted to learn more about the body. I wanted to be able to fix people. I wanted to be able to remove things and put things back and make things better. And by the time I got to my surgical rotation, that sort of solidified it for me. And the first female surgeon that I met, I was a pediatric surgeon. And I wanted to be just like her. I wanted to finish come back to Harlem Hospital as I rotated there in pediatric surgery, and I wanted to take her job. But on the other hand, <laughs> my preceptor didn't see me as a surgeon. Oh, wow. And he said, you can consider and should consider perhaps dermatology or pediatrics or even podiatry. That would be a good thing for a woman to do. Wow. But I cannot, in all honesty, write you a letter of recommendation to become a surgeon because you don't have what it takes. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So he just completely wrote you off. Yes. 
And without that letter of recommendation, I still have was determined because I was pretty strong will that I really didn't need it to get into a residency program. But unfortunately, I did. And so he pretty much wrote that I, despite my excellent surgical rotations and my recommendations from other physicians and what the residents had said as I wrote it on general surgery, he didn't picture me. I don't remember if he said something about my hands being too small or by being too short or, you know, that all translated to you're black. And you haven't had a black woman come through here as a surgeon. Wow. So he actually noted that in the letter. I don't know. We don't have privy to the letters, but I know what he told me. Wow. And I, in my mind, that's what it translated to. I mean, wouldn't it be great to have small hands to be a surgeon? I think it would be wonderful. I mean, then big hands. I can get into places where other people can't get in with my small hands. And what about being too short? That's why there's step stools in the OR. They're short men. They're short men who are surgeons. I'm sure no one ever held them back because, they were, I mean, I wasn't five feet. I was five, five. I don't consider that short. But I think those were just excuses. I was always very quiet. And one of the things I tell students in, who are medical students, you got to speak up, make your presence known. Let them know that you know the answer, even if you have to say after someone else, but make sure you be heard and be seen. And that's one of the things I had trouble doing as a medical student. I was very timid. I was very quiet. And that could have worked to my detriment. And you're intimidated by these white men as surgeons when you're in the operating room and you're nervous and, you know, you got to be prepared. You got to have that knowledge. You have to make sure they see you and they know what's in your head, because that's one of the mistakes that I likely made. Not having a mentor, not having someone to guide me or to tell me all these things that I needed to know that would have helped me at that time. But there was no one there that I could turn to until I met Dr. Barlow. And then as a fourth year student, rotated with um, the only other Black surgeon that I saw on faculty. And he was a colorectal surgeon who actually had developed the art of polypectomy for uh, early diagnosis of cancer. And um, he actually was uh, had roots from Barbados also. And I was delighted to finally be able to meet someone that I could gain some guidance from. So those things are so important, being able to know what it is you need to do, reaching back, reaching out to others, uh, getting those key points, knowing that you're going in with two strikes, one, you're female and two, you're black. And I say three strikes because if you're from the Caribbean and have an accent, that's also how it puts you in another, oh, you know, you can't be that smart category. Uh, yeah. And so those were my obstacles in trying to be a surgeon. And I ended up without his letter, not matching to a program, but I had rotated with Dr. Barlow for a few months at Harlem Hospital. And I was able to then get a preliminary spot as an intern at Harlem Hospital that first year and continued on, continued to remain there, completed my whole general surgery residency at Harlem Hospital under Dr. Barlow. 
as as my mentor uh, and my, with my desire to become a pediatric surgeon. And in that course of that learning experience as a resident, I went on to do research in kidney transplantation at Columbia under a transplant surgeon, Dr. Mark Hardy, and then developed an interest in transplantation surgery. So it was actually kidney transplants that got you interested in transplantation? Yes. Well, okay. So what would you say was the greatest lesson you learned from medical school, not in the classroom? One of the things I learned is that you have to really understand the place where you're coming from. You have to be prepared. You have to be self-confident and you have to work hard. And a lot of that is going to rely on your determination uh, and your grit to get through because things will come at you left and right. There will be obstacles. And I say as a, as a black female or as a black male or a person of color, you will have many more challenges compared to those who are privileged and have the influence of parents or other physicians in their family who can speak for them, or it, it really makes a difference when you have a father or a parent or grandfather who's been there before you are well-versed in the, the world of medicine or who everyone, else, you know, you get that extra edge when someone says, oh, I worked with your father. He's a great guy. Come on in. You know, I'll be happy to do this with you. Or you can, you can come to my office anytime. Or you can show up and I'll be glad to help because you already have that edge and you have that extra advantage over everybody else. If you don't have that, then you're sort of left out. And I, many of us felt that when in medical school because so many of the students had parents who had gone to medical school. There are people who were connected and you don't have that connection. So that can also be a negative. So you have to have that grit and determination because it's about perseverance. It's about stamina. You can have the book smart, but you have to be able to figure out how to make yourself stand out as a person of color. How do you stand out above all else? What makes you distinguishable? It's quite interesting that it's a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? Like where you're the minority as a person of color amongst the majority of white people, but yet still you don't stand out. It's quite ironic in itself, isn't it? That you have to go that extra mile to stand out. It's quite um, a contradiction there. On that note, one of the things I say is that on my book cover, I said, an example I'm going to give you, for many years as a transplant surgeon, I often wondered, we have these annual transplant meetings, American Society of Transplantation, and where you have hundreds of people gather, people you've worked with, over the years as a fellow and you trained with. And my Caribbean background, I tend to not, I remember one of the first things I went to for interview in pediatric surgery, I was told, try not to wear a loud color because for me, it's going to be red or, you know, well, printed skirt is like, make sure it's black and blue, which is not like me. 
Uh, and so when I got past and I had that opportunity to go to meetings, I would have something colorful on, whether it was red or orange or yellow or something that stood out. You know, you figure, okay, I am dark skin. Why would I want to wear black? And I'll be walking down the hall and these hundreds of people and colleagues that I've worked with for years would just walk past me, walk right by me. And I would say to myself, after a while, I would just go, huh, John, why did you not see? Hey, Velma. Oh, Velma, so good to see you. I'm sorry, I didn't see you. You know, when I got bold, I said, how could you not see me in this bright yellow suit? Because you chose to ignore my presence. You chose to look right through me or right past me. Or while next to me would be your white colleague and you would go, hey, Mike, so good to see you. But you totally miss me. That's a selection. That's selective choice of deciding who you want to acknowledge and whose presence is important to you. Now, that's really striking because if they don't see you as a colleague, as an equal, as a fellow doctor, then how do they see patients <laughs> if that's what the mindset is? That's really quite disturbing, to be honest. I mean, wow. Patients, they have, you know, that's their income. Okay. Have patients, you are the customer. Right. And in and out, you have to make sure that you as a customer, you have rights. You can say, hold up. I'm not done yet. Or I still have a few questions. I was trying to, but you have to advocate for yourself because you have, in the end, you're the patient, you are the customer. But sometimes you don't get the best delivery of, for what you pay for your money. And an example of that is, uh, was just speaking to my brother who went to have an eye exam and the doctor looked in his eyes and told him, you are diabetic, you need to take care of your eyes better. And uh, he said, now I have to go to my doctor and figure out if I'm a diabetic. I said, but did he ask you if you're diabetic? He said, no, he just assumed I'm a diabetic. I said, but are you diabetic? He said, no, I'm not. So I said, you see something abnormal in your eye. I said, and you're a black male, an older black male. So he assumed that you have diabetes. The question was never asked. I said, was that Dr. Caucasian? He said, yes. I said, so already there's a bias set in place. And this is one of the things I tell kidney patients who see me, who I see for evaluation of kidney transplant. And they're given, they have high blood pressure. And so they're given a diagnosis of hypertensive nephropathy. And I see them and I say, how long have you had high blood pressure? He said, not till about two or three years ago. I said, when did you learn out your kidneys were failing? Oh, about two or three years ago, it says your high blood pressure correlates with your kidney disease. And I said, I says, you know, high blood pressure is a symptom of kidney disease. It may not necessarily be the cause because unless you've had high blood pressure for over five years or 10 years to result in, in kidney disease, then it may be something else. 
So therefore, as a black person, a black patient, so given that diagnosis of hypertension as a cause of kidney disease, when it may not be. And so many patients, you miss an underlying issue that may be something else, because if you're black, the assumption is that it must be from high blood pressure. It's more likely from high blood pressure and you don't get additional workup. And patients will then, after transplant, manifest what the original disease might have been that caused the high blood pressure that caused the assumption that there's kidney disease. Whether it's IgA nephropathy, whether it's focal sclerosing, glomerulonephritis, it's about not making assumptions about someone and the disease process and not making assumptions about someone and their knowledge and understanding or lack thereof. Sometimes you would say, oh, well, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, she don't quite get it. Well, maybe you didn't explain it correctly. Don't underestimate the patient's potential. Maybe you talked over her head. And that's how sometimes you have patients who are therefore suffering from the illnesses and not getting appropriate treatment because we make assumptions about what their disease process are actually asking or going to the next level to seek better answers. Sorry, we got off on a tangent there. Sorry. <laughs> not at all. It's all relevant and definitely part of the challenges that Black patients worldwide face. I mean, you're talking about your experience in America, but that has been my experience here. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was in hospital for over two months when I was diagnosed as having kidney disease. And they assumed that I had diabetes and I don't have diabetes. And it's like every single day. <laughs> having to say the same thing, you know, there was just this assumption and, you know, I mean, that's just one example, but what you're saying absolutely rings true. Things are ignored or missed or assumptions are made. And, and as a result of it, and the knock-on effect of it is then, you know, something that could have been treated earlier on it is left and then maybe more damage is done as a result of it. So it's um, absolutely a firm believer that you are your health advocate and you do need to speak up for yourself and you do need to ask the questions and challenge and and I think that that's definitely helped me in my journey and my work and absolutely encouraging everyone listening to do the same so in terms of because I know that you've done over 2,000 transplants and more than 1,000 kidney transplants. What was your first surgery? What was your first ever transplant surgery? Well, I think my first, certainly I assisted as a resident as I was working with Mark Hardy at Columbia University when I was rotating as a third and fourth year student uh, for a resident. But I have to say that when I went out to Pittsburgh to start my transplant fellowship, and one of the first cases I did was a kidney transplant, and I walked into the room and the attendant was doing what we call a back table procedure. And as a kidney, especially a deceased donor kidney arrives, 
there's a lot of fat on the kidney that from how it's removed that has to be removed and you have to isolate the blood vessels and the drainage to the ureter. So it's what we call back table procedure, getting the kidney ready for implant. As I tell patients that, why do you have to do that? I said, well, you don't really want me to give you a whole bunch of unnecessary fat. We all have enough fat that we want to get rid of some. <laughs> you don't want any more than uh, what is necessary. So as he was working on the back table, he said the patient was asleep and he says, go ahead and start the case. And I'm thinking, start the case. I haven't done this since two years ago. And um, so I'm really nervous. I'm trying to remember. And thank goodness, I would say that at the University of Pittsburgh, we had many trained surgeons from other countries who were always there to learn about transplantation. It was always a mecca of international uh, doctors. And there was uh, a young an older gentleman who was scrubbed in also going to be helping me. And um, he was really nice about making sure I did the right things, making the decision, trying to recall all this information and get down to the vessels. And uh, I mean, I was really, really nervous. I was like, oh, I get this right. Thank goodness the patient was, I think it was a teenager. So their blood vessels were uh, quite clean and good with no plaque and disease. And I was able to finally get through it, but I was a nervous wreck through the whole thing. And then he goes, oh, okay. He brought the kidney up to the table and say, okay, let's, let's go in and sew it in. I was like, oh my God. But you know, adrenaline keeps you going and it keeps you, uh, it's interesting because the necessary recall and the information that I needed to have on that time just sort of came back to me. And uh, was able to say that I got through that, but I have to say it was one of the most grueling. I thought I was going in to help him, not for him to be telling me to just go do it. And I just learned that he was, and I realized after that, that he was one of those surgeons. If he was assigned as the attendant, he usually just sit outside and say, call me if you need any help. <laughs> I learned after that, I wow. better be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> So I had to learn real fast. Yeah. So, yeah, everything went well. Patient lived, survived, kidney did Yay. well. <laughs> That's good. So from there, you said that you first became interested in surgery from kidney transplantation. So am I right in thinking that kidneys was where you really felt most comfortable? And what was it about the kidneys that you liked? Well, you know, in, initially in finishing my or going through my two years as a multi-organ transplant fellow and learning about liver transplantation, going out and doing donor retrievals, getting livers as a team and getting kidneys as a team flying all over the country. It was much more prestigious to be a, a liver transplant surgeon. Kidneys were sort of, were viewed as, you know, if you didn't do well in liver, then you get shafted to the kidney side. And, oh, wow. and so <laughs> as one of my colleagues said, kidney transplants were really, is not true transplants, but oh, wow. that, you know, it sort of puts you down as a kidney surgeon, then you have liver surgeons around. So everyone wants to be the top-notch liver surgeon, but my interest was really pediatrics because I loved and thought that when I went to Pittsburgh, my goal was to do transplant as research so I can become a pediatric surgeon. And then I learned that pediatric surgeons didn't do transplants. Transplant surgeons did both adults and kids. And so that was my focus. And, um, and so I rotated uh, 
most of my, as much as I could on the pediatric side, because many of my colleagues didn't want to do uh, the pediatric side, mostly in terms of the parents, sick kids, they're sick parents, they're all, it's, they're, it's, they're very demanding, and you have to have that patience and understanding. And so, yes, I really enjoyed both pediatric liver transplantation and kidney transplant, and my focus was initially livers. And um, I think I ended up switching over to primarily kidneys after I became pregnant and uh, the long hours of standing and the demanding of liver transplantation and um, uh, the time permit, especially when my kids were young, it was difficult to leave them for you know, 12, 15 hours in the hands of someone else. And so I ended up primarily then focusing on pediatric liver, pediatric kidneys and adult um, kidneys because it offered me uh, shorter cases compared to liver transplant and, um, and much more predictable schedule because livers had to be done when they were available. Kidneys got shafted to after the liver or you can always put it off to midnight. Uh, and work during the night and still be able to get done before six o'clock in the morning and be back home to get your kids off to school or, you know, to the babysitter, whatever is necessary, and then be back to work for a living donor case, which may start at eight o'clock. So you have that little time lag that you can manipulate my schedule much more. So it kind of was your interest mixed with practical reasons as well that drew you over <laughs> to the kidneys. Yeah. yeah. And then it was much more, once I focused on kidneys, I then realized that you had a system in place in this country that monitored patients on dialysis, that monitored patients with end-stage renal disease. While in liver transplant, there's not a system that tells you how many people have end-stage liver disease, unless they're connected to a transplant center. And then you realize that many people of color are not referred to uh, transplantation, but are just doomed to die because the doctors don't see them as capable or being candidates for liver transplantation. But on kidney transplantation, you had dialysis as an option. And then you realize that there's so many people of color on dialysis, but yet so we weren't seeing the same numbers on the transplant list. And that became intriguing to us. And we then began to look at the data and realize that you can do something about that because then you had an audience through the Medicare system, which gave you numbers and you saw the disparities right off the bat. You realized that African-Americans weren't donated, African-Americans weren't getting transplanted at the same rates. You know, that knowledge and understanding and education wasn't there. And so those then initiated the drive to say there's a lot more to be done here in this area uh, where we can impact as physicians of color can begin to educate our communities so that people are, who are calling me and saying, well, what can I do? My doctor says I have to live the rest of my life on dialysis. No, you do not. That's misinformation. That's not the correct information. You do have choices. And you realize that so many people of color were not being given those choices. And then it became a, a real point of interest and job that needed to be done 
by physicians of color to say, at least within nephrology and transplant, to say, this is an area that we need to focus and begin to put more education out there, talk about the distrust of the African-American community of Blacks when it came to donating on how can we get them to understand that we need to do this because there's so many people in need, so many people of color who need, and the need is there, and so you can help. And uh, that then became uh, a focus of mine. So what would be, in terms of raising awareness and education within Black community, what would you say is the number one thing that you would want Black patients to know? It's important to realize for us, the number one reason we see that reluctance is still distrust in the medical community. I don't trust doctors. I know somebody who was a friend of my grandmother whose cousin first best friend told me that <laughs> they signed their organ donor card and went to the hospital and they, instead of saving them, they ended up having the kidneys removed. It doesn't happen like that. We're not here to get your organs. You have to understand that it requires permission, consent, and not everyone can be a donor, but there's so many people who can benefit from organ donation, deceased or even as living donors. I think I always tell people, God gave us, most of us, or the majority of people, two kidneys, but we really only need one. So maybe he's looking to us to be generous. We can't take them with us. When we die from dust, we came and from dust, we will return. It's not this physical body that makes a difference. So when people say, I'm taking everything with me, where are you taking it? It will go to dust. You're going to pay for a very expensive casket and it's going to go into the ground. But what a remarkable Gift, you can give someone else to say, well, if I can't be saved, why not take all that you can to help others? Take my corneas, take my long bones, take my heart, take my liver, take my kidneys. If they're usable, take my skin because it would all deteriorate. You're not taking it anywhere. And to get folks to understand that. You can be of help to others is crucial. That's the message we need to get out, that there are people in need. And this is, our bodies are not something we're taking with us. So as one of the bumper stickers used to say, recycle yourself. What a great gift that would be. I haven't heard that one before, recycle yourself. I like that one. Yep. So... It's well documented and well known that there is that distrust when it comes to Black people, I would dare to say worldwide in the medical profession. And there has to be a lot more work. And I think, especially during the pandemic, it's certainly highlighted that distrust when it comes to vaccines, when it comes to anything really. And what do you think will help bridge that gap of trust? You certainly need more medical professionals that look like us. In this, you know, worldwide, we have the ME. In this country, we may have millions of doctors, one point something million. 
but yet still 5% of physicians are physicians of color, 5%. Wow, that's very low. Yep. And so until we can bridge that gap, there are the people who look like us can begin to see physicians that look like us and be placed in positions where we can make a difference and have a seat at the table and begin to impact policies that are put in place, begin to say we need to tear down these social and institutional constructs that present themselves as barriers to people of color getting appropriate care getting to see and have people who are sensitive to their needs and their culture and treat them as they deserve. That's where we need to go. Better representation is so that you have a greater understanding of the patients and have that trust established. And, you know, even with COVID, we can say, we tell patients, well, we have Black people at the table. We have people who have helped develop this vaccine of color, uh, and that makes a difference. We know that some of the randomized trials were paused because there was a question that there weren't enough people of color. And if there are companies who said, I'm willing to change that, but I want to recruit more because I think it's important to have more people of color in these trials then so that we can have that better representation. And I think that's key so that there's not these biases that are in place when so that patients are sitting on dialysis and I have that subjective bias put in place by saying, oh, you're not suitable for transplantation because you're non-compliant. Well, maybe you're non-compliant because you have lost your vision for better life and you don't see this as something that's going to make a difference so why bother coming if i have to live on this dialysis for the rest of my life maybe they have a bad perception or misunderstanding that there is other options that are out there that can give them better alternatives to a better life or maybe if you said to that patient you know you will likely be able to be listed if you do these four things to put yourself in a position Educate that patient. Say, if, you know, rather than writing them off from the start, say, you know what, we can get you there, but I need your help. If you want to get on a transplant, this is what you need to do. And that's possible. You have to see it as possible. You have to see it as a next step, not blowing their hope or saying, you, you're not for me. You, you'll never get a transplant. It's in the grant, it's not for everyone. But they're patients who are dismissed right off the bat. I see patients who are 15 years on dialysis, and then I say, what took you so long to come to be evaluated for a transplant? Oh, my doctor told me it was still experimental. It's experimental. It's 2021. So misinformation, you've got to advocate for yourself. You've got to learn. You've got to read. You've got to begin to say, what are my options? What are the alternatives? Why? Why should I stay on dialysis? I don't want to die on dialysis. What's the death rate on dialysis? How long am I expected to live on dialysis? 
is there a better way? So asking questions, knowing your disease process. One of the things we have in this country is that there's certainly a disparity in people of color getting living donation. There's a disparity in people of color being transplanted before they get to dialysis because people of color tend to be pointed towards dialysis as opposed to saying you can get a transplant without getting to dialysis. So many people feel like you need to be on dialysis before you can be evaluated for a transplant. No, that is not true. That's misinformation. And those are the things that we need to eliminate. So what can Black patients, Black people do to help themselves when it comes to kidney health? What can we do in terms of prevention? Because I strongly believe prevention is better than cure. So what can we do to prevent or to prevent further decline when it comes to kidney health? A couple of things. Know your risk. We as people of color tend to want to keep secret how Aunt Jane died and Uncle John had something that no, we don't, we're not going to talk about that. But we need to talk about it. Because for us to stop that cycle, we need to understand what killed Uncle John. And if Aunt Mary and Uncle John all died on dialysis, well, why did they die? What diseases did they have? So understand your risks, understand your family patterns, and understand what you can do to put yourself in a better position. If it's genetic or it's based on age or sex, those are things you can't change, but we can change our socioeconomic environment, things that we can change our diet or exercise, our factors that affect our risk of developing certain things, but also get checked. Kidney disease is a silent disease, and many of us are not aware that we're getting there, whether it's diabetes, hypertension, or other causes, because it doesn't necessarily manifest itself as in an overt symptom. So just as you go to the doctor and get your blood pressure, uh, we want to know what our hemoglobin A1C and our diabetes are, is and our cholesterol. What's my creatinine? Add that to the list. And a simple test, a urinalysis, to check for protein. If you're not diabetic or you're not spilling blood in your urine, it's standardly you should not have protein in your urine. It's an early signal of kidney disease. Make sure that's done, especially with our kids. I remember when my kids were growing up, so often they went to as teenagers or young kids to the pediatrician and they can't go to the bathroom to give a urine sample. It's always, okay, we'll get one next time. Well, next time, maybe a year too late. And so many kids get missed in the, at a young age for those early diagnoses. One of my parents said, my child has protein in the urine is sent him to a urologist who looked at his kidneys and the ultrasound and said, I don't see anything abnormal. All looks good to me. But they didn't need to see a urologist. He needed to see a nephrologist. And so five years later, that young man presented with kidney failure from FSGS, he could have been picked up before if he had been sent on the right path, a simple urine test. So those are two things I want you to be able to add to your regimen. It's a silent disease, get checked. So many diseases can cause kidney failure and kidney disease can 
also be a manifestation of chronic anemia, other symptoms that get missed. People present with so anemic, they get blood transfusions, but no one checked to see that they have kidney failure. That's why they're not making erythropoietin. So demand from your doctors, if you're from your physician, when you go get annual checks, make sure you're getting your creatinine check, make sure you're getting protein in your urine, know your family history, start with preventive things, control your diet, stop smoking, exercise, control your cholesterol. All those things can add to plaque disease to interfere with your kidney function. So that's it for me. Thank you so much. And the final thing that I wanted to ask you is for the person listening who might have that dream of becoming a doctor or a surgeon, that young girl or boy or teenager or maybe somebody in their 20s, what advice do you have for that person whose dream it is to become a doctor? Follow that dream. Find a mentor. Find someone who can give you advice, someone who can connect you with a physician or whatever kind of doctor you want to be, who can make those connections for you. You tell your teacher, the teacher may know someone who says, you know what, I have a friend who's a doctor and let me call them and get some advice. What you can do in, you know, before COVID, I used to advise my young people, if they're of age, volunteer, get in the hospital, you know, seek your family physician, ask them more questions. Maybe you can hang out with them for a while, but now, you know, with COVID, none of that is happening pretty much. But you can always find others who will point you in the right direction, who would make those connections for you. And when students call me and I can't do it for them, I'm not in the right area, I would always call my colleagues or I can, you know, if they even if they live in another state, I can email someone and say, I have this young person who's interested. And any doctor of, of color, will, I should say any physician will be willing to do that for a young person who's truly interested in have that dream and desire. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for sharing such amazing advice, for everything that you have shared with me today. I'm so excited and so honored to have you on Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. And don't forget that you can contact me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Please do subscribe to the podcast and please do tell a friend. The next episode in the Kidney Health and the Black Community series will be released on Monday the 11th of October. Until next time, take care and choose to live. Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast in partnership with Kidney Care UK. Sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love.